We are in the book of Judges, which is contained within 66 books of the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative Word of God. We've been talking about Samson for the past several weeks. He was a man who was singled out by God before he was born, specifically to be used of God and to be used by God in mighty and miraculous ways. And he was selected by God based on God's perfect ways, which we are told in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, that his ways are not our ways. And obviously, having said that, God, from what we've seen already and will continue to see today, did not choose Samson because of any particular qualities of leadership or fidelity or integrity that he knew Samson possessed. God is God, and we are not. (laughs) Go figure. And while people routinely protest about this, sometimes publicly, sometimes within the quiet of their hearts and minds, the truth is, is that people of all stripes don't much care for the way God operates in the world much of the time. Much of the time. Let some calamity take place in any town USA, and people are quick to blame God. A natural disaster takes place somewhere in the world, killing thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people, as we saw in the uh, tsunami several years ago. And people are quick to blame God. Let the innocent and the weak be trampled by the despicable and the strong, and we blame God. And let my personal experience of some kind, any kind, perceive some kind of injustice and watch me rail against God. Isn't it true that most of us want a God who is involved in everything that takes place, which of course, means we want a God involved in every aspect of life, taking action now, in any given situation, in the ways that we would take action if we were God. Meaning everything would work out great for us now. So the truth be told, We are all raving existentialists. We live in the moment. We live for the moment. Our reality extends only as far into the future as right now, this moment. We tend to be oblivious to the fact that a decision that works well for me at the moment just also may have hundreds or in some cases, even thousands of subsequent consequences for hundreds or maybe even thousands of people into the future. (laughs) God knows it all. God knows it all where we know only what is in our face at the present time. And so we tend to forget that our view, the view from the cheap seats, as I like to call it, is really limited. Job 
is a classic example. In Job chapter 30, verse 20 and forward, this is what we read. Job is speaking. It's well into the book. This is only one of many protests. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You've become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride, and you dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or in his disaster therefore cry out for help? Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. (laughs) The view from the cheap seats. You ever been to a stadium to watch a sporting event and found yourself up in the nosebleed section, as it's called? It's called the nosebleed section because some people's noses tend to bleed at high altitudes. I've been to, uh, not since I've been in New England, but I've been to several professional-type sporting events, baseball and uh, football. I was actually in the Kingdome many, many years ago. It doesn't even exist anymore. That's how long ago that was. There you are in a football game, and you're up there in the cheap seats. You're there with your bud. You're like, so what's happening? What's going on down there? I don't know. There's guys out on the field, though. Uh huh. What ball is the? uh, What yard is the ball line on? What yard? Here we go. (laughs) What yard line is the ball on? Carry that bucket in a tune, will you? Things keep haunting me. I have no idea. Well, what's going on now? It looks like somebody stepped on an anthill and there's stuff scurrying around all over the place. I don't know. I think they just snapped the ball and had a play. What's the score? Uh, it looks like it's tied 14 to 10. <laughs> the view from the cheap seats tends to be really Limited, And when it comes to the grand scheme of life, we are all watching from the cheap seats. As we resume our narrative this morning, let's remember that God raised Samson up for the express purpose of beginning the deliverance of God's spiritually lethargic, that means lazy, people. And they have been in a generations-long stupor of resignation to their oppressors, the surrounding nations, the Philistines. And so what the people will not do for themselves, God will do by any means except overriding their free will. So we come to Samson. And again, Samson is not your typical superhero type. But God is. He is the ultimate superhero. And He has plans to use this very flawed man, who, as we have seen in previous weeks, has an issue with lust. 
And Samson, as we have seen, has a penchant. That means a knack, a predilection to, a gift, if you will, for making stupid decisions. The writer of Psalms in Psalm 94, verse 8 and forward says, Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? It's a biblical term. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. That is, if the stupid ones will be unstupid and pay attention and listen and obey. The translation, stupidity, by biblical definition, is ignoring the wisdom of God for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Samson didn't make just bad decisions. Bad decisions can be made being well-thought-out decisions, and bad decisions can be made with integrity. But because we cannot know everything in any situation, even a well-thought-out choice or decision, we all know, can end up poorly. Very bright and conscientious people make bad decisions. But it wasn't bad decisions that characterized Samson's life. He was under the vow of a Nazarite. And yet he categorically rejected God's wisdom, somehow believing that making stupid choice after stupid choice over and over again would somehow end up differently. Many years ago, seems like a million years ago, over in the other property, I preached some sermon. I couldn't even tell you what the text was or anything else. But a line that I used in that message has come back to me more than anything that I've preached in 23 years. And that is, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. And I've had so many people over here come up to me and go, you remember, you know, yeah, you always do what you always did, you always get what you get. I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah, good, praise the Lord. Samson, though, never put that together as we will see again. We pick up this morning in Judges chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and he saw a harlot there. Okay, explain to the person next to you what a harlot is if they don't know. And he went into her. Doesn't mean he went into the house to visit and have tea. Okay. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place, and they lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, and then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, and he pulled them up along with the bars, and then he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Samson was already 
Philistine public enemy number one. Remember, he had left Las Vegas, so to speak, took a little detour over to Ashkelon, and he winds up now in Reno, where with a paucity of words, only nine words in the Hebrew, we're told that Samson finds the nearest woman of the night. Explain that if you need to. And Samson does what Samson does. The Philistines catch word of it, and so they lay in wait, seeking to rid this nuisance from their land. But Samson finishes his fun, so to speak, and he heads out in the cover of night, and he comes to the city gates. Walled cities were the way life was in those days. A walled city was a matter of protection. And the gates were the only way in or out. So the level of protection of any given city was only as strong as the city gates. So those city gates of any walled city were fortified. I mean fortified to the hilt for obvious reasons. They were considered impregnable, or at least hopefully so. But the city gates also served another function. They were also the meeting place for the magistrates and the leaders of the cities of those days, where civic business was taken care of and and laws were passed and edicts were issued. It was, if you will, the state house of the municipality. It was the political hub of the community. So not only was it the the prime means of, of protection being the weakest link, It was also symbolic of everything that community was about and all its leadership and decision-making power and authority of the community. The city gates were important. So Samson's escape route is right through the heart of the defenses and the business of the Philistine city. And he seemingly meanders through the gates, ripping them out of their mountings, and carrying them off with him. Now, if you're a Philistine, you're angry, oh, for sure, but you're also baffled, not to mention intimidated. This Samson is extraordinary. You might remember from previous weeks that he's already single-handedly killed 30 Philistines of Ashkelon, He wiped out their economic backbone by destroying their grain and and their grain heaps and the grain fields and the vineyards. And then in another rage, he took a jawbone of a donkey and he killed a thousand more Philistines. So they realize they can't win until and unless they find their own superhero. And so they frantically go in search of the legendary Canaanite Chuck Norristine. But then they realize <laughs> they realize that he won't be born for several thousands of years, <laughs> and they're going to have to resort to espionage. Verse 4. After this, it came about that Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sork whose name was Delilah. Delilah's name comes from the root word in the Hebrew for the word weak giving the sense that Delilah was a weakening kind of woman. 
which lo and behold is exactly the role that she ends up playing in Samson's life as we know. Verse 5 and 6. The lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. And then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Now this doesn't merely resemble Samson's first true love. It's essentially identical. (laughs) If you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. But let's remember that there's a difference between choices that turn out badly and choices that are just stupid choices. And everybody makes both kinds. And some really excel at the latter, but you know what? (laughs) Either way, we find strength in knowing that the God of heaven and earth has saved us. And so we declare, precious Jesus, you are the rock of our salvation. Your grace abounds in deepest waters, and your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you never failed, and you won't start now. Go ahead and sit down. So Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. Samson said to her, verse 7, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I'll become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire. So his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Think about the progression here of this weakening woman, weakening Samson's resolve. Watch how the longer Samson plays around with Delilah's inquiries, with her naggings, the closer he allows her to get incrementally to the heart of his vulnerability. Sin's ability to snare its prey is that it doesn't often or very frequently just jump up and grab someone saying, Ha, gotcha! And sexual sins definitely start slowly and they chisel away at one's resolve one little piece at a time. 
James says the same thing, but another way in James chapter 1, way up in the New Testament. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I find it interesting that God's Word, unlike our culture, completely takes the victim mentality right off the table. So this lethal game that Samson seems to be enjoying with Delilah has to escalate. It is the reliable characteristic and nature of sin and temptation. The longer one plays with sin and temptation, the greater the stimulus the person needs just to maintain the same level of payoff. Just to use an example, and and this is not to imply that, that I'm using a necessarily sinful example, but you'll see what I mean about this 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 escalation of stimulus needed to keep something moving along. Think about one of your old, old boyfriend, girlfriend, little crushes when you were in uh, college. No, grade school, junior high, high school, wherever it happened to be. Right? It's a girl you let... Yeah. Okay. I'm going to stay focused here. So... Do you remember, you're kind of like, gosh, you know, you really got this thing going, and, and you kind of think she or he is into you too, you know? And you're walking down the hall at school maybe or wherever, and your hands just kind of bump together. And it's like, man, we touched. Oh, right? And I mean, it's like exhilarating. But it's not very long, and, you know, the bump in the hand thing, you know, Okay, we've got to go to another level. So what happens? I'm going to risk it. I'm going to see. <gasps> now we're holding hands. Ah! <laughs> right? And you're alive and you're feeling all awesome and everything. But then that becomes kind of normal and routine. And it's no longer the same. So now you got, now you got to get that old arm stretch thing going around, you know? And get it, and now you're arm in arm around the waist, and and you know your hips are kind of touching now as you walk along, and it's like woo. And then, well, you know where I'm going with this, okay? Anyway, you see, it doesn't just stay static. There needs another level, and another level, and another level, and that is how sin works as well. And it works very successfully. Samson is getting bored with the game. And so something has to change. And by golly, it does. Verse 13. And Delilah said to Samson, Up to now, you've deceived me and told me lies. Well, we'll bag that. It's too hard on the voice. (laughs) We'll make her a little more gruff. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with a pin, then I will become weak 
and be like any other man. Now, going back several weeks, Samson, remember again, was under the vow of a Nazarite. There were basically three elements prescribed by God for one who was under the vow of the Nazarite. The first one pertained to wine and anything and everything having to do with wine in any way, shape, or form, and the fruit of the vine, and the fruit itself, and even the vines themselves. The second element was that the one under the Nazarite vow could not touch dead bodies or even touch things that had touched dead bodies, and not just human bodies, but animal corpses and all of that. That was also forbidden. And the third element in the Nazarite vow pertained to Samson's hair, that he was not permitted to cut it. Well, he had violated two of the three parts of his vow already, and we saw in previous weeks And now only the vow regarding his hair remained untouched. And that is about to change. Verse 14. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. And she fastened it with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and he pulled out the pin and the loom from the web. And then she said to him, How can you? Well, how can you? It's just habit. That's how I read these. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? And you're trying to kill me! I said he was stupid. Okay. You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. And it came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him. That, that is... I don't know, it cracks me up. His soul was annoyed to death. <laughs> oh, and yo, we have here in the words of Yogi Berra, whoa, it's deja vu all over again. Because remember his first wife in chapter 14. Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me and you do not love me. Duh. However, she wept before him seven days while the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. Well, the first one pressed him hard, Delilah, was even worse. Verse 17. So he told her, and he told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. That, by the way, is a really telling admission. Because everything we have read about Samson in his basically conscious, responsible adult life, you wouldn't even know that he remembered that he was under a Nazarite vow or that it meant anything to him. So that's an important little line there. If I am shaved then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, now that's interesting, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, for he has told me all that is in his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. All I can say is that dude sleeps hard. I am envious. (laughs) Then she began to afflict him and his strength 
left him. Remember the strength, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the strength was never in his hair, but was totally the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, of God working on him and through him. But the vow of a Nazarite was a serious vow, and God took it very seriously, whether or not anybody else did. In Numbers chapter 6, the vow of the Nazarite is where it is spelled out in various other times as well. But in Numbers chapter 6, the vow is spelled out as to what it requires and what it means. And then in verse 7 of Numbers 6, it says, All the days of his vow, referring to any Nazarite in particular, of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy, which means separated, until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long, because his separation, the word there is Nazir, which is why he's called a Nazirite, because his Nazir to God is on his head. Now, interestingly, the same word is used, Nazir is used in Second Samuel Chapter 1, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. This is what we read there. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. Now, that detail is not specific. But anyway, this, this individual they're talking about is being vanquished and is vanquished. And he says, and I took, the translation is, I took the crown. Now, the word is Nazir, the exact same word. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, referring to the one that was vanquished, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then remember in Revelation chapter 3, going way up to the very end of things, at the end of the New Testament, remember Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia. Jesus says to them in verse 11 of chapter 3, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. In toying with temptation, Samson lets Delilah get closer and closer, giving up his long hair. He let Delilah take the crown that the Lord had placed on him, namely his calling to God and forfeiting it, giving it up, losing it because of his sin. Verse 20. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I'll go out as at other times, and I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Again, it was nothing to do with his hair. Samson had forfeited his crown, his calling on his life. And just a couple of weeks ago, before Easter, I was talking about, yet again, two new situations before us in the last couple of months of two Christian leaders forfeiting their calling of God upon their lives because of sexual sin, giving up their crown, if you will. That special place that God had set them in to use them for his purposes and how many men and women today have no idea of what God had in store for you because of giving up your crown.
for any and all kinds of reasons. And this doesn't just pertain to sexual sin. It pertains to any sin that becomes controlling, that becomes devouring, so that whatever it is becomes the new idol. It is your new focus of worship, regardless of all the pretense that takes place on a Sunday. And I've often thought, and I truly think this often too of myself included, that when I stand before God... You know, again, we have these, these impressions of what heaven's going to be like, okay? Most of them are wrong. But I believe that when we stand before the Lord, and I could be wrong in this, but I see some precedence for it, is that when I stand before Him, and I don't know which will come first, the exhilaration and then the, okay, you're going to give account for every word and every careless thought and word that you've ever said and all that. It's like, I don't know where and how that all plays out, but, okay. I believe that. And I just wonder if every one of those who are in heaven and will be in heaven with Jesus for all eternity, nevertheless, will not be privy in the moment of all that God had in store for them. But it never came about because of the individual having forfeited their crown. And I just wonder myself, and I'm sincere in this. I think I wonder, Lord, in how many different ways or scenarios you would have desired to take me to another place. I don't mean that geographically. But take me to another place, but because of good old cripishness, he said, no, that's not going to work out. And you say, but it's heaven. You know, there's no sorrow, no sadness. Now, I understand all that, and that's all true. That's all true. But I'm not sure that that doesn't mean that we are not going to be sobered before the King of mercy and grace, because in that moment, there will be the recollection and there will be an unveiled acknowledgement of the intensity of God's mercy and grace all the more upon you that He did with you what He did. And for that, we will be eternally thankful and grateful. Let's get practical for a moment. Is MySpace even still in existence? I, I don't even know if it's around, but okay, it started out with MySpace, and then, of course, Facebook came on the scene and basically wiped out MySpace. But Facebook <laughs> is a mixed bag, to say the least. Okay? I mean, one of the things, though, that it has done, and again, it can be both good and it can be evil, is it's given we human beings yet another element of deity as far as omniscience. Not that we will ever be all-knowing or even close, but now because of technology, we have the ability that we never had before to search millions of names and places through a couple of clicks of a keyboard to find people that we knew in grammar school or in high school or in college. And, of course, Satan has used that to split up husbands and wives through Internet romances and all the other avenues. It's not only Facebook, but that's a big one. 
And so what I am telling you as your God-appointed chief shepherd for the time is that in this age of technology and all that that means, and I talked about it categorically, again, several weeks ago about pornography and the availability and the the, uh, ubiquitous nature of that all over the place. Husbands, your wives had better have every one of your passwords to any and everything that you own, every device, every website, anything here and there, and you should have her password to anything and everything that there is. And the blessed mutual understanding should be that you have open access any time, any way, any place that you wish to jump into my stuff and take a look and see where I've been, see who I've been talking with on Facebook or anything else. That is a safeguard. And it's not flawless, obviously. But if your heart is to do right before God and to protect that crown that is on our heads, we need to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Because Satan doesn't care who he steps on and is thrilled any time he can compromise a Christian. So at least, if nothing else, take that particular step. And don't you dare, husbands, don't you dare wives ever, ever get the least bit upset at your husband or your wife because they have asked you a question about something or about this or that. Or you find out, have you been on my... The two become one flesh. Satan is the one who is in the business of separating. So if you want to play Satan's game, then fine. You can play the whole privacy game. When I was doing pre-marriage counseling... I used to get such a kick out of the couple that would come in and, well, I'm going to have my checking account and he's going to have his checking account. I'm like, wait, why? Well, because my money that I earn is going to be in my checking account and his money is going to be in his checking account. And I'm like, okay, throw that right in the pit of hell. Okay? Now, does that mean there aren't some mutually agreeable situations in which that may be beneficial for your husbands and wives? Of course not. Nothing is in and of itself inherently sinful. But I'm telling you the way Satan works. And if you're going into a marriage, like, well, there's my money and his money. You're already off on on a path of separation. Stop it. Biblically, quit being stupid. It's time to do things differently, sports fans. The worst thing about the accusations that I read on Facebook about Christians and the church and Christianity and this and that is that most of the time the people doing the criticizing have all kinds of legitimate ammunition because we've given it to them. We're supposed to be coming more and more like Christ, becoming conformed to his image and likeness, and that means to his heart and his mind. 
Not thinking the way everybody thinks out there. Well, you got to protect yourself. Yeah, nothing's permanent anymore. You into that marriage, man. You got to just, you got to look ahead and think, you know, the day could come when things kind of fall apart. You got to have that little nest egg over there. You've already thrown your chip in to the destruction of your marriage. No, it may not ever proceed past that point. But why go, Satan, I am with you on this one. Here you go. It's biblically stupid. So take that, the two become one, seriously. I have nothing to hide from my wife. She has nothing to hide from me. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Let me have you stand. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Oh, dear Jesus. Father, I'm so, I'm so truly, I'm so truly glad that for all the bad decisions that I have made in my life, Lord, and Lord, and I will continue to make, you never abandoned me. Many, many times you have mitigated the consequences of those bad decisions and choices. And I so thank you for that. And Lord, I also make stupid decisions along with everybody else. And you have even mitigated some of those. Others, you have let them run their course as an act of love. And for that, I thank you. And above it all is your mercy and grace and that nothing, nothing, not our bad decisions, not our stupid decisions can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We worship you, thanking you for being our Savior and Lord. Amen.